I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by the Oklahoma State Medical Association, cornerstone of Oklahoma medicine with physician members who are committed to better health for all Oklahomans. Learn more at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt is once again calling for a special session to discuss tax cuts. Stitt wants lawmakers to return to the Capitol on January 29th, exactly one week before they're scheduled to arrive for a regular session. The governor says he wants a 0.25% reduction in the personal income tax. Neva, how's the idea of this special session going over at the Capitol? About the same as it did last fall. I think we may see a repeat. Uh, uh, eight hours, I think, back in October, uh, Senate basically saying it's a non-starter. You know, House came in, recessed to the call of the chair, didn't go home. Senate came in, went home. Um, I think the conversation and and just what's been out in the in in the press just this week indicates that uh, Pro Tem Treat has not changed his mind, nor does he think uh, a number of uh, members of his uh, Republican caucus uh, that this still seems to be kind of a non-starter conversation, at least for a special session. And, you know, I think when the give and take, I mean, the governor saying basically this is a good time, we have a strong economy, um, we've got, you know, $5.4 billion in savings. I mean, let's get this done. It's been a top priority of his uh, of his administration and and um, and a big push, continued push. And yet you have uh, these uh, lawmakers saying, no, let's go slow. We're a week out from a, from a regular session. We'll have four months to discuss this. We haven't seen the Board of Equalization. Um, their mid-February numbers when they come in to certify. Governor counters and says, well, we expect those numbers to be good. They were good last year. All indications are still strong that we're on the right track. So it's a it's a continued conversation, I think, that spills over into not only this session, but into the 2024 election cycle, because there's already conversation out around uh, some at the Capitol that there's going to be a, ta a tax cut pledge uh, uh, that's going to be out there circulated, uh, pushing lawmakers to sign on, obviously, with the implication that if you're not signing on, that someone's going to potentially use that against you if you're up for re-election. The Senate, there's a lot of composition change there already. I mean, we know at least eight uh, senators out of the 24 that'll be up uh, on the 24 uh, election cycle are either term limited or have already said they're not running. There could be others. So it's uh, it's going to be a, an interesting early start, pre-start to a session that uh, I think last last session we saw vouchers where the big fight was. Uh, it would appear tax cuts may be that looming fight uh, for lawmakers in the 24 session. Ryan. And Eva, I agree. I think that this is a lead balloon. It doesn't go anywhere. It probably tells us more about 
the tone between the governor's office and the legislature going into the regular session that does begin on February the 4th uh, than it does anything else. Um, the, the idea that Governor Stitt can have a concurrent special session to work on tax cuts, knowing that the legislative leadership isn't on board with it. If you um, look at some of the reports, it, it says they, they say that uh, Senate pro temp Greg Treat uh, was in a meeting with the governor uh, prior to all of this and, and essentially said, this isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, the governor knows that it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and you have three of the four uh, legislative leaders uh, in the House and the Senate uh, saying that this is a non-starter with you know, the speaker, Charles McCall, being the one who expresses the, the most optimism or uh, at least willingness to kind of go along with the governor's call here uh, in some substantive way. But you know, if you look at the players, you've got President Pro Trent Greg Treat, who leads the majority Republican caucus in the Senate. You have Kay Floyd, who leads the Democratic caucus in the Senate. You have Cindy Munson, who leads the uh, minority caucus, uh, Democratic caucus over in the House. All of them basically saying the same talking points or, or citing the same talking points. We're at a point right now where the session hasn't begun, but lawmakers are at the Capitol. I was out at the Capitol today, and it, it's beginning to feel a lot like session. Uh, there's... There's more and more uh, lawmakers around there there for agency budget hearings for the most part, where agencies are showing up at the Capitol and making a case to lawmakers for you know, what they need for their budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that's happening, and you mentioned this, Neva, is in mid-November, the Board of Equalization will actually certify how much money the legislature can use uh, towards its budgeting process. And that's and you know, so all of those things out there with all of the past baggage of this issue, this isn't going to go anywhere. I, I agree that tax cuts may be an issue this legislative session. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, especially going into a campaign year, it sounds great. Among those tax cuts that I expect will then, you know, rise probably uh, as as much as income tax cuts will be the grocery uh, sales tax cut. Uh, you know, that seems to be one where if that actually comes up for a vote in in uh, the legislative chambers. You might have enough members, Republicans and Democrats, that would be willing to vote for that, and the governor would actually sign it, and it would be real tax relief for Oklahomans. Uh, I think that this income tax cut, um, and without any way to pay for it, uh, and the governor hasn't really shown up to, to say how he would pay for it, I don't know that that goes anywhere. Uh, and again, you know, my unsolicited uh, advice to the governor, the president pro temp in the Senate, Greg Treat, had said, Governor, come, come sit in front of our A&B committee. Explain to us how, how we're going to pay for this. Explain to us how we're not going to use one-time money or money that we just have from the federal government that we had from COVID, leftover funds uh, or ARPA dollars. Uh, how do we sustain paying for this tax cut? The governor should take him up on that. And if the governor's got a plan, he should go sit down in front of the legislature, uh, accept that invitation and, and make his case. Well, given the fact that there is this huge surplus, I mean, and the economy is in in a good place, a lot of people are the doom and gloom forecasters of yes, but the day will come when we aren't in a good place, when everything will go south, that uh, the revenue, oil and gas, or whatever you want to look at across the board and the revenue streams won't be there. But from a conversation of just tax relief to Oklahomans, um, this has been something that Republicans have talked about for decades. I mean, we've talked about it at times when uh, there were no surpluses, uh, but still the conversation of needing to uh, needing to make sure Oklahomans had tax relief. In this instance, this quarter of a uh, 
a 0.25%, 0.25%, moving it from 4.75% to 4.5% as a starting place on reduction in the state income tax. Seems like, I mean, that in and of itself would be something that could be done looking looking at the budget, looking at the math, if the will of the legislature was there. But I think this larger conversation that the governor has infused into the income tax discussion of wanting to uh, move toward eliminating the state income tax, you're talking about a $4 billion impact, a, a hole in the state budget, if you were to one day be looking at no state income tax in, in the revenue uh, equation. So that's the bigger conversation. And that may be something that's kind of slowed the the uh, just kind of this opportunity to have a little bit of tax relief versus this longer term policy discussion of where do we go in terms of the future and what that looks like, both from a budgeting standpoint and tax relief for Oklahomans standpoint. Republican lawmakers are hoping to amend a state blacklist of banks deemed hostile to fossil fuel energy companies. The measures from Senators Dave Rader of Tulsa and Chuck Hall of Perry comes after local and statewide issues had issues with the law targeting financial institutions for limiting oil and natural gas investments. Ryan, why are the senators seeking these changes? Well, this is, you know, one of these instances where a law was passed. It sounded great to the folks that supported it. It made for excellent press releases to support their point of view that uh, Oklahoma should not be doing business with uh, banks and financial institutions that are not uh, investing in oil and gas or divesting themselves from the oil and gas industry. And, you know, that, that made everybody feel really good. But oftentimes, whenever you pass a law like this, there are uh, I would I would argue foreseeable consequences, but and it's in, in in this instance we'll give everybody the benefit of the doubt and say unintended consequences, and the unintended consequences here have been very real. Uh, you have a state pensioner right now who's suing the state of Oklahoma, saying that uh, individuals that rely on state pension uh, funds that are potentially managed by some of these uh, groups that are blacklisted, that pensioners themselves could end up realizing losses as a result. Uh, of the, the blacklist. You have the city of Stillwater in particular that was trying to borrow money and found the most favorable rates apparently at a uh, bank that was on the blacklist and then trying to get an exemption and whether they could or could not. And it slowed down their ability to do some, some important infrastructure projects. And I think ultimately they decided to not even try to get a bank loan uh, to complete those projects. So yeah, I think that uh, as both... Uh, Senator Rader and Senator Hall, both senators that have authored legislation for this, um, neither of these bills, uh, they've, they've said as much as well that neither of these bills are in their final form. Mm -hmm. There is an interim study to discuss uh, how this blacklist is affecting Oklahoma municipalities and how it's affecting uh, pensioners and, and pension systems in the state of Oklahoma. So you know, I anticipate as both of these bills make their way through the legislative session, There'll be a lot of input, and uh, but I, I do think that one or both of them stand a good chance of becoming law because this is a uh, this is a response to real problems and real challenges uh, that lawmakers kind of created by passing the law in the first place, and now they need to uh, show up and fix it. So you're know, grateful that this conversation is out there. Excellent reporting by Oklahoma Voice on this, uh, and some of the original reporting by. Paul Money is at Oklahoma Watch. You're doing a deep dive on this blacklist to begin with, I think really helped elevate this issue among lawmakers. Neva. 
Well, I think this is an issue. You're right, Ryan, to the extent that lawmakers and even the state treasurer said early on, even back last fall in the October interim study when this conversation was was going on, that there were a very definite need for conversations and the potential for amending or tweaking uh, the original bill, which was uh, described as the Oklahoma Energy uh, Discrimination Elimination Act. And that was exactly what the original intent was, is to uh, is to make clear that the financial institutions, these large international, national um, uh, institutions, financial institutions that were uh, boycotting the fossil fuel companies, that this was something that Oklahoma needed to make a stand on and, and be make it clear that we're, we are a large energy producing state and uh, that that should be taken into account. So out of that, we have these uh, these spinoff issues that have come up. I think the one, the, the bill that, uh, uh, as you said, Senator Hall uh, has filed that uh, really deals with whether or not uh, municipalities uh, would fall under the uh, fall under the existing law or whether they would be exempted. And then the second one by Senator Rader, basically uh, taking the position initially, I think the bill, the way it's pre-filed, is that it would give the state treasurer the ability to uh, ask the attorney general for an opinion if he uh, disagrees on how uh, an agency or a pension system uh, was responding or or dealing with the law, and, and that would be something similar to the Oklahoma Public uh, um, Employees Retirement System when they took the exemption under the law um, and not wanting to divest from some of the blacklisted companies. It, I think it's important to note that this, the way this bill came about, it instructed the state treasurer's office to deal with this. Um, and the blacklisting was really just identifying uh, identifying these particular institutions and uh, entities and then providing a, a mechanism for them to, to be able to get off that list by showing certain things. So it was not just some indiscriminate uh, across the board, just give and take, but a very structured uh, look at how Oklahoma and the state treasurer's office was dealing with these uh, uh, with these entities. And obviously, when you're talking about pension systems and a lot of things that are involved in this, there's a lot of players, there's a lot of stakeholders in the game, and it 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 really demands a big conversation. And I think lawmakers understanding that now are trying to get some bills at least in the mill that they can start working through and see what they need. In the instance of the Stillwater, um, the Stillwater issue, I mean, and the, and this one um, municipality, I've not read or heard of any others that seem to have issues. And it, it and even in their instance, in trying to get um, um, a, a loan or funding to do some uh, energy efficiency projects, I think it was for their city, they were able to do that despite their issue that came along. Uh, with the uh, original, uh, the, I think the Bank of America being the one that was the lowest, uh, uh, gave them the best deal, I mean, basically on the, on a loan, and yet they were on the list. So uh, it'll be an interesting conversation. It's something that I think most folks don't pay a lot of attention to unless they start hearing that it impacts their, their pension or 
you know, or something like that. And then then there certainly is a lot of a lot more attention paid to it. And so um, it, it'll be fascinating to see what uh, what happens with respect to these two bills or whether others uh, kind of get folded into it in this conversation with respect to the blacklist. Oklahoma County commissioners are paying a land acquisition firm $202,000 to help them find the location for a new jail. The county has been encountering significant opposition to locations under consideration. Earlier this week, commissioners tried to reconsider a location in a southeastern area of the metro, but faced a large contingency of opponents. Neva, what are the issues here? <laughs> the issues are no one wants it in their backyard. Right? No one, no one, want, everyone wants the jail, but no one wants it where, it, you know, where it seems to impact them. And I think, I think this is the, uh, uh, this is the continued rub and the continued problem that they have. I mean, I think one of the descriptions was that that this whole uh, process of trying to find the location was like a game of whack-a-mole. And I think probably a lot of these folks engaged in this uh, engaged in this endeavor probably feel like that right now. I mean, sites have come up and been voted down and then come back up. I mean, we had the issue last week where, you know, at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you have a room full of folks from uh, Dell City sitting there waiting for a long, I think, executive session and and really making their point that, look, uh, you know, what's the deal? I mean, this has been voted down this particular site that they had issue with not wanting it uh, in their area. They said you voted it down, I think, not once, but twice. And why are, why is it still continuing to crop back up? Um, you know, bottom line is they don't yet appear to have good options. And uh, they've had uh, finally, their their board, the constituted nine members, they finally got uh, another one appointed and uh, con, uh, approved by the uh, the commissioners. I think last week, so that's a good sign. But I think looking at uh, all of these arguments, you've got a group that says it needs to be downtown. I mean, without you know that they're saying that the judges and the the bail bondsmen and the attorneys and all of the folks that directly are involved uh, and interact with people in in the jail or in in the criminal justice uh, uh, system need to be somewhere where it's convenient, transportation wise, and all of the other arguments being made. And yet, that seems to have been a non-starter. The FAA weighing in and eliminating the the airport uh, area property which was one of the at least initially appeared to be one of the high profile uh picks by the uh, by the commissioners so the clock is ticking like we've talked about in weeks past and and it's uh it's a uh, it's certainly proved to be more challenging than i think anyone would have anticipated and uh, no clear runway yet in terms of uh finding what that property is going to look like and where it's going to be in Oklahoma County. Right. And still, it's not really clear whether or not commissioners, at least by uh, current news reports, whether commissioners are entertaining that property right next to the existing county jail. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Neva mentioned that earlier and said that there's some, uh, there's a group out there that's, that's lobbying for that to be uh, at least under consideration by the county commissioners and, and whether or not it's getting, scrutiny uh, of, of whether it would be an appropriate spot. You know, Jess Eddy, who has been really at the forefront uh, of the group that's been pushing for a jail near the existing location of the current jail, makes some excellent points. Uh, you know, the problem whenever you move the jail uh, away from the courthouse is that even if you can find you know, cheaper land, 
even if you can make it easier to build out, to spec what you want to build out, you inherit or, or manufacture for yourselves a lot of logistical problems that you're going to have to solve, namely court, uh, uh, transportation to and from the courthouse to a jail. And uh, yeah, I think that we can say, oh, well, we can do things by closed circuit camera these days. Uh, the detainees don't necessarily have to be at the courthouse. Well, that sounds a little, and I know that we do a lot of closed circuit hearings as it is, uh, but I've got a real problem with the idea of, you know, just moving to this total Orwellian state where you don't have an opportunity to stand in front of a judge uh, or just, you know, during these hearings. Um, when you have public defenders that are housed in the Oklahoma County Courthouse and they have to go over to the county jail to see their clients that are being detained. Uh, if if that's something that takes them instead of you know you know 15 minutes to get there and get checked in to something that's an hour, you're taking an enormous amount of their day uh, just totally out of commission because they're going to spend so much time traveling. That also goes for bail bondsmen. That goes for everyone that that touches the criminal justice system. So the more remote you find yourself from the courthouse, the more problems that you've got. And what commissioners, I think, are finding is that just because you're moving to what they consider more remote areas away from downtown, where there is a lot of you know great housing development that's happening, high-end housing development, restaurants, entertainment, and all of that, that you move the jail away from that, those communities that you're moving to, they don't want it either, as, as Neva said. You know, it's not, you're not in my backyard, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Yes. So Stockyard City, Stockyard City, they didn't want it. Dell City, they don't want it in their backyard. And so just because you're moving it away from the, the center of Oklahoma City doesn't mean that the folks out and you know, what are kind of, I guess, considered the, the, you know, the, the outskirts of Oklahoma City and uh, Oklahoma County, they don't want it either. Uh, so I, I really hope that commissioners will take seriously the, um, the comments and suggestions made by Jess Eddy and, and his, uh, the, the group of folks that are working with him and really think about is it possible to build a jail that's closer in proximity uh, to the courthouse? And and I think in so doing, if I think the longer they keep that out of serious consideration, uh, the more problems they're going to find. And uh, as Neva said, the clock is ticking. We've got federal dollars that have to be used uh, to subsidize this project. And if that doesn't happen by by a certain time, then those federal dollars go away and we could be back at ground zero and stuck with one of the most dangerous, dangerous and reprehensible jails in the country. You know, it's interesting too. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. It seems like when you look at a, a situation like this, n- not everyone is going to be happy. So at some point you've got three commissioners elected, each basically having a third, a third, a third of Oklahoma County. They're going to have to make a vote and make a decision on where this site is and there are going to be people that clearly are going to be unhappy wherever that wherever that location is. You're not going to have 100 percent approval. I mean, you are going to have people upset or or believing that some other site was a better option, whatever the case. By hiring uh, this individual last week to be this um, person who's really going to be a site analyst or an acquisition specialist and start to really uh, review these sites and maybe come up with, uh, you know, a more substantial 
um, package and, and view of each of them and make an assessment that maybe these commissioners have something uh, more to hang their hat on other than just the initial cursory uh, information and reviews that they've done uh, among themselves and, and uh, folks that have been involved in the process. So, but you're right. I mean, the fast track needs to get to be a fast track because those ARPA dollars could very well go away if these deadlines are not adhered to and or if they're not extended. And I think no one should, no one should go down the road of assuming that extensions are a possibility. You better get the job done in the time in the timeline prescribed. So they've got a big job, big job on the table. And uh, you know, we'll watch week in and week out and see what progress is made. And I don't think that an independent consultant here is going to give commissioners any political cover. You know, commissioners may think, and I don't know that this is the case, but commissioners may think, well, we hire an outside group to come in, score and evaluate all of these different properties. They give us their recommendations. We move down the list of those recommendations. And the first one that we're able to uh, to purchase and acquire, well, that's the one we go with. And when they're out on the doorsteps running for re-election and people say, well, why in the heck is this in my backyard now? Why is it in your district now? Uh, they, they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to satisfy voters by saying, oh, well, this independent uh, consulting group that we paid hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to help us select this, they said you, you, this location scored the highest with them. That's not going to give them any political cover. It may give them great information as to how they're going to select this site, uh, but they shouldn't be under any illusion that having a third party out there is going to give them political cover whenever uh, they have to answer these questions uh, uh, during their next campaign. The state Supreme Court heard oral arguments on a case to determine tax-exempt status for tribal citizens. A member of the Muscogee Nation says since McGirt found the reservation was never disestablished, she was exempt from income taxes because of her tribal membership, employment status, and residence on tribal land. Ryan, do tribal officials have a case here? Well, I think it really comes down to, uh, well, let's just you know step back for a second, because uh, I think it's important to note that under existing Supreme Court precedent, uh, the individuals that live on reservation territory, as it was defined by the Oklahoma Tax Commission, so that used to be land owned by the tribe or land owned by a tribal citizen that they had then put back into trust with the tribe and who worked on tribal land, and for the most part that meant working for the tribe, that they were exempt from income tax, that the state had no jurisdiction to uh, to assess taxes on their income. So now that was a very limited number of individuals. We don't know how many exactly. The tax commission was asked about that uh, during this hearing and, and uh, by Justice Gurich, and uh, they were unable to give that number of how many people uh, had qualified for that uh, existing exemption from income taxes. And Justice Gurich seemed to be uh, a little uh, uh, astounded that they could give uh, give the court that number. Uh, but nevertheless, that's that's the existing law. Now, Fast forward to McGirt, uh, when the Supreme Court dis, uh, determined that in McGirt that historical boundaries of reservations had not been terminated uh, and that they existed by treaty right, we went from where you had you know one maybe uh, you know kind of a uh, um, you know maybe one house is uh, in tribal jurisdiction and then another's not. This building's in tribal jurisdiction. It's not, uh, and this one's not. This parcel of land, and and so on. We went instead to what most people in, in the rest of the United States, whenever they think of reservations as a, a land contained by contiguous boundaries, right? So everything that's in it. So if you think about the, the Creek Nation, 
the Muscogee Nation, most of eastern Oklahoma right now falls within one of these uh, boundaries mm -hmm. of a reservation of a tribal government in the state of Oklahoma. So the question that the court is having to answer here is, well, the, the United States Supreme Court told us way back, uh, I think in 1991, that we couldn't assess this for people that lived on what was called Indian country then, but it was a very limited idea of Indian country. Uh, do we have to expand that to the entire reservation? Um, you know, so does a tribal member that lives within their nation's boundaries on their reservation and earns income uh, from a tribal source uh, within that the boundary of that reservation, are they exempt from income tax? So the you know that's I think central to this question is did McGirt expand the definition uh, and recognition of reservation for everything uh, beyond criminal jurisdiction? Um, and you know and that's that's the real question. And I think that the court, even in, uh, the Oklahoma Supreme Court even indicated that it might ultimately come down to the United States Supreme Court uh, to, to determine these issues of federal law. Um, now, I think politically, it's important to recognize that this isn't uh, an enormous crisis for the state of Oklahoma's uh, fiscal situation. I think that it, if this were allowed to happen where the state could not, uh, did not have jurisdiction to tax these individuals' income, uh, we're looking at a, probably around a $75 million loss to the state's budget. Now that's not small by any means, but it's also certainly not you know, crisis levels. Um, and I, again, it comes back to this issue of where there are uncertainties um, in uh, tribal law and state law, the best way to go about solving those is through cooperative compacting processes uh, where the state and the tribal governments um, meet each other as um, on, on equal playing fields as sovereigns. And when they're able to do that, I think they're in a much better position to work out these issues, but it's got to get worked out one way or the other. So there are three ways to work it out. You work it out in a compacting process, which is much more collaborative. Uh, Congress works it out, which, I mean, let's remember it's Congress. Congress barely does anything. So uh, hoping that Congress does something uh, you know, it's is like that, you know, it's it's 80 degrees tomorrow in Oklahoma. Uh, and then the third way is to leave it up to the courts. And when you leave it up to the courts, you might get some of what you want. You might get none of what you want, but it really does uh, create a lot more uncertainty. So I think that this whole situation really emphasizes the need for collaborative, respectful, compacting uh, talks between the state of Oklahoma and the and the uh, tribes that share their borders. Neva. No question. I mean, the I think the uh, justices on the the Oklahoma Supreme Court in hearing um in hearing this last last week or a few days ago, um they ask a lot of very thoughtful questions and I think when you look at it your comment uh, Ryan about the, the 75 million dollar potential price tag right now not being that you know not being that impactful i think the bigger question is is that the beginning of a much bigger price tag when a lot of other things come along and follow uh, after uh, a decision such as this if it were to happen if if the estimate on the ruling if it went for strobel uh, the individual that is uh, making making the case right now and the state lost this estimated 75 million a year 
if it if if that applied to all of the uh, eastern Oklahoma tribes, the the large, the traditional five tribes, the Muscogee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Seminole, I mean, where does that where does that go in the conversation beyond just this tax uh, this this tax issue before that has been um, first at the Oklahoma Tax Commission now um, before the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And as you say, Ryan, I mean, back in 1993, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, had a decision on a case that involved a second fox, uh, uh, the second fox nation and the tax commission. So we've been down this road. We've seen it go all the way to the highest court in the land. And it may be, in fact, because of the complexity and all that that we're seeing post McGirt, um, because we're now talking about civil where McGirt started as criminal uh, in terms of the context. Uh, and we have uh, already, I think, uh, by most people's estimation, a ruling that will be several months or longer away because of the fact that there is so much to take into account uh, based on just this one case they're looking at alone. Governor Stitt appointed Tourism and Recreation Department Executive Director Shelley Zumwalt to sit on his cabinet as the new Secretary of Tourism and Wildlife. She replaces Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, who moved over to serve as Secretary of Workforce Development in July. Neva, what are your thoughts on this appointment? Well, I mean, once again, a vacancy. Uh, there's four vacancies on the uh, on the governor's cabinet. Uh, we've talked about that before. One of them still the education secretary, but he now has made this appointment uh, of uh, Shelley Zumwalt as the uh, um, secretary of tourism and wildlife. And you know, I think uh, uh, Ryan likes to describe her as the Swiss Army knife of uh, <laughs> state employees. And and given her track record and number of uh, uh, places that she served for more than a decade in state government. She certainly has that track record. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at what's happened since she came into a very scandal ridden um, uh, department uh, with tourism and recreation uh, and all that's gone on with implementing zero based budgeting, uh, renegotiating the the uh, law of the contracts, opening back up the state uh, park restaurants and six of the state uh, uh, parks across Oklahoma, um, doing a lot of things that uh, people, I think, have um, paid attention to and and see a, as very positive signs coming out of tourism and recreation. But, you know, I, and I think it, it already is uh, kind of agenda up some conversation and speculation that uh, um, that um, uh, she may, in fact, be someone that uh, is either courted to run for higher run for office herself, elective office, or maybe I elective office down the road. I mean, obviously, uh, the lieutenant governor's position has been one that, that uh, has interfaced uh, closely with tourism, recreation. There's a, a easy fold over there. So um, you know how it is in the political season as we get into uh, the campaigns. Uh, you always hear a lot of speculation, not only um, of people that are seriously looking at something, but those who uh, project out and think of who might be on the horizon to be considered or might be interested in political office. So that kind of folds into this equation, I think, as well. Ryan. When Eva, to live in a world where competency in and of itself uh, were, were the hallmark of a winning campaign. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I agree. I think that her track record in state government you know, definitely demonstrates uh, a level of competence and understanding. Um, you know, you said that I, I call her the, the Swiss Army knife. 
uh, I was, I've, I've got a new uh, uh, phrase today that I, she's the utility player. Uh, you know, what, whatever position, whatever position the governor needs her in, uh, she can go out there and she can play it and she can play it well. And I, I think that uh, this really, as, as we've, we've looked um, at so many instances where Governor Stitt has brought people in from the private sector uh, to try to take over running these government agencies, they have often ended with the person resigning because they just get fed up with it. They have a better life in the private sector and then they're gone. Um, and, and we end up with, with a lot of vacancies and a lot of turnover where with somebody like, uh, with Shelley Zimwalter, Secretary Zimwalter, uh, you've got someone who is a career public servant um, and who doesn't just accept an appointment, but is accepting appointment after appointment uh, and, and going from job to job and taking on uh, tasks that a lot of folks would just run from. Uh, you know, the tourism department, yeah, you know, I've, I've got to imagine that, you know, even today there are still investigations uh, going on within the tourism department as to what the heck happened there. Uh, you know, was there, were there crimes committed? Was, was there anything uh, that, that violated the law that happened in the entire uh, situation that, uh, you know, seems like a million years ago now, but, you know, there's, there's a time when you, you couldn't think about uh, uh, barbecue in the state of Oklahoma without, you know, considering whether or not there were indictments to follow. And uh, that's somebody who, you know, Shelly walked into that position. And as you said, she turned, she went from a, a situation where the bring a million a year to now they're actually turning a profit. Uh, the restaurants are open. They've done zero-based budgeting. Um, and, you know, I, I know that all of those create rocky transitions and they're, they're just tough jobs. Uh, and when you walk in, you're, you're also not going to be the most popular person in the room because you're going to be making very tough decisions from day one. Um, so her, her willingness and her ability to do that, uh, whether you always agree with or disagree with any of the uh, positions or uh, strategies that she may be uh, employing, uh, you've got to applaud the fact that you know, here is someone who has really dedicated themselves to, to public service in the state of Oklahoma and is ready to serve whenever called. You know, it's interesting when the governor's, the announcement was made of the governor's pick this week of Shelley Zumwalt uh, to join his cabinet. There was all, it came at the same time that there was this uh, announcement or uh, kind of unveiling of this report, uh, the 2022 economic development report for the state. And I mean, in that, I mean, when you think about the fact that uh, tourism is our third, uh, third largest industry, and I think by that report, uh, it was something to the tune of about $12 billion, the economic impact uh, that uh, that we saw in 2022 in Oklahoma from the tourism industry. So this is something that has to be a sharp focus all the time because of the sheer, not only the 18, 19, 20 million people coming to the state every year visiting Oklahoma, but the, the, but the economic impact that grows year over year in terms of multi-billion dollar infusion into the state. So this is uh, this is not something I think anyone involved in state government at any level takes lightly, the fact that it's important that they're doing their job and doing it well when we start talking about tourism, uh, given its impact on the, the well-being of our state financially and in terms of making it an attractive place for folks not only to visit, but to bring business, to come and live, to come to to come to school, and all of the things that go along with it, to to make a very vibrant uh, economy across the board. 
Orion and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Ginny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.